Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. Hello there, good afternoon. You're welcome along to Wednesday's Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully with you once again. Um, listen, the first question I have to ask you is, are you watching the Bake Off, the Great British Bake Off? It's on of a Tuesday evening, makes my week. I love the Great British Bake Off. It's perfect winter or autumn. We're still in autumn. Don't get ahead of yourself, Scully. It's perfect winter watching. It's like being wrapped in a big warm hug. And I mean, it's a competition, but I guess the Bake Off must be the only competition where the competitors actively help each other and are nice to each other. I love it. I love everything about it. And I also love the commentary that goes on on Twitter while the programme's on because it can be very funny. So last night was Biscuit Week. Not, it has to be said, one of my favourite weeks. I'm a kind of a dessert, loads of cream, gooey things kind of person myself. So biscuits, I always think, a bit boring. But anyway, they started off and they were asked to bake macarons. And this caused major confusion. Macarons. What's a macaron? And is it the same as, as we used to say growing up in Dublin, a macaroon? Um, so there was great crack on Twitter until somebody posted a very, very helpful kind of uh, graphic which showed us that what they were being asked to bake was a macaron, which are the French yolks, which are kind of crusty on the outside and a bit gooier on the inside. They come in all kinds of generally pastel colours. I think they're awful. They're kind of too sugary for me. A macaroon um, is the coconut yolk. And then obviously a macaron, well, that's the president of France, which has nothing to do with biscuits whatsoever. Although it's quite tasty as well. Can I say that? Is that a bit sexist? Anyway, anyway, it was very educational. But the second biscuit that they were asked to cook in the technical challenge got me very excited because they were asked to make Garibaldi biscuits. Now, who remembers Garibaldi? I haven't seen a Garibaldi biscuit in decades. They used to be called also the dead fly biscuits. You know that they're like flat ones and they have currenty bits in them, but the currants aren't full, so they, they look like squashed flies. <laughs> and we used to call them the squashed fly biscuits. Uh, but this is what they they uh, they made. Now, they, they kind of wrecked them a little bit because they were told to put chocolate on half of them. And I never met a Garibaldi that had half, uh, half of it covered in chocolate. But it made me realise that I miss Garibaldi biscuits. And I am now on a mission to find anywhere that stocks Garibaldi biscuits. Are they in your local store? Because they're sure as hell not in mine. Um, and then it got me thinking about 
And I probably get fixated about biscuits more than the average person because I'm diabetic and I shouldn't be eating biscuits at all. So I tend to dream about them more than eat them. But um, got me thinking back to the other biscuits that I used to love as a child were Marietta biscuits. Who remembers the Marietta sandwich that you used to get with your two Marietta biscuits, your butter in between the two? We obviously never used to put butter in the fridge because you'd be able to squish them down then and the butter would squeeze out through the holes in the Marietta biscuits like little buttery, delicious worms. Absolutely fabulous. I went to bed last night dreaming of biscuits um, and I'm still thinking about biscuits today. So if you know, first of all, I have two questions for you. If you know where stocks Garibaldi biscuits, you need to let us know. That's very important. You need to let me know. But anyway, we need to know. That's very important. And secondly, I want to hear from you. What biscuits do you miss? What biscuits did you have in your childhood? But maybe they're still around, but maybe they're not still around. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of, um, do they still do those, um, what do they call them, Kimberly Mikados? I don't think they're still around with the coconutty bits on the top of them. Uh, but anyway, let me know. What's your favourite biscuit? What do you like to have with your cup of tea? And particularly... What was uh, if there was a biscuit that you had when you were growing up and that's not available anymore? What do you what do you uh, weep about not having uh, any longer? Let us know. Get in touch. Send us a text or a WhatsApp to 086-1800-658. These are burning questions that I am uh, needing answers to today. Anyway, enough of that and down to business. I am... County Meath County Council are urging people to avoid using so-called backyard garages after having to clean up almost 120 discarded tyres and car parts which were dumped on a rural roadside. Joining me now to talk about this problem uh, in Meath of illegal dumping is Alan Nolan, litter warden with Meath County Council. Now, Alan, before we talk about the serious issues of illegal dumping, I have it on very good authority, namely Louise, my producer here, has told me that you are a baker par excellence and an expert on all things biscuits. Would that be correct? I wouldn't say... OK, for the sake of Louise, I'll agree with her. <laughs> <laughs> wise man, wise man. <laughs> <laughs> wise man. Um, I wouldn't be a huge, huge biscuit eater, but my good friend Noel Fleming and his wife Chrissy, I have to say, I have a very, very soft part of me heart for Chrissy's cheesecake. Ooh. I would be like, I'd be like you, I'd be more dessert than Desserts. biscuits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, are you Chrissy. telling me, are you telling me, Alan Nolan, that when you have a cup of tea, you don't have anything with it? Unless there's cheesecake going. I I wouldn't drink a lot of tea now either, to be honest. Oh, for God's Um, sake. I'd be a a coffee man, but I would be partial to a ginger nut. There you go. I knew we'd get to the real deal. Ginger nuts. Yeah. (laughs) If Louise cooks biscuits for you, just tell her they were nice. Don't eat them. Right, you're a brave, you're a braver man than me, but I'll bear that. I'll bear that in mind. If she comes in bearing biscuits, she's obviously trying to kill me. Well, she got them off someone. <laughs> well, that'd be safe enough then. Listen, back to the serious business. Um, this 120 discarded tires. Tell us a little bit. Where did that happen, and and what was that about? Just outside the village of Kentstown, and the Danes, beside Danestown Cemetery. If anyone knows the area, it's a small little rural roads where the local residents do an absolutely fantastic job of keeping the grass verges tidy, clean. And in, in appearance, it's probably one of the prettiest little roads you see in County Meads. And unfortunately, last week, um, I probably can't use the language on air. No, I don't. use the language on air. No. Nope. Uh, UIFs, as I call them, and I've always called them un- un- uneducated, ignorant fools, decided to drive down the road, obviously a little tipper truck, and in the middle of the road, just spilled the whole out into the road. Uh, there was car parts, 117 car tyres, car parts, car jacks, trolleys, 
We believe, and it's hard to say, but there is a lot of backyard garages out there, we call them. They're unregistered. They're not registered with Repack ELT for their tyres. Um, they must be also registered to get rid of their waste oils, their battery acids, their fluids, their windscreen washer fluids, all that sort of stuff, brake fluid, clutch fluid. They're not registered. We don't know if it was a garage or a garage gave it to someone to get rid of them. When you buy a tyre, Barbara, when... If you yep. go to a tire, a tire company that fits tires and that's all they do, yeah. they pay they pay two euro eighty two euro eighty plus the VAT to repack ELT. That covers the cost of taking back the tires. When they have enough tires, they'll ring the company and say, "Right, we have hundred tires here. We need them collectors. They're paid for." Now right. the, that cost is passed on to you when you buy your tire. They're doing it correctly. They're open to inspections at any time from Meath County Council, from the EPA, and repack ELT. Um, right. There's a lot of these, like, you have a fella there with a garage in the size of the house, he'll, we think they go up north to buy tyres, they don't have to pay the ELT charges up there, they'll bring them down, and then all of a sudden they're looking at the side of the shed, the 30 or 40 tyres, God, how am I going to get rid of them? It's going to cost me six, five, six euros to get rid of the tyres. They're obviously giving them to someone, or else themselves driving out the country, and the gallon drums of oil, the five gallon drums of oil, the 45 gallon drums of oil. They're bringing them out, they're dumping them, they're giving them to someone, they're getting them at a cheap rate. Rather than pay 200 euros going to get them done properly, they're giving them to these guys that are on social media advertising to pick up rubbish. They're probably paying them 50, 60 quid. This is where they're ending up on the side of the road. Good Lord. So you're telling me that we as consumers already pay a tax, if you like, on tyres when we buy them from a registered tyre uh, place that covers yeah. the cost of getting them recycled it, and it, uh, correctly. It's like your weed, electrical. Yeah. When you're going to buy an iron, yeah. there's two or three euros put on the price of the iron. You don't know that, but it's yeah. there. It's put onto it. And that's all the recycling of electrical products is free because of that fund that's there. It's the same with tyres. It's free. They're free to collect from the end user, as we call it. Yeah, yeah. But like, people operating, we'll call them illegal. Yeah. Because that's what they are. They're illegally operating a garage without being registered for the likes of their waste oil, their waste fluids, their waste brake fluids, clutch fluids, petrol, diesel, tyres, batteries, all of that sort of stuff. And it's ending up on the side of the road. Yeah. There is some great guys out there doing great work. But, like, people need to think about, OK, if I'm going to Johnny down the road, he's taking two tyres off me, are they going to end up in a bonfire? Are they going to end up... Where are they going to end up? Are they going to end up inside the road? So what you're Hopefully saying... Said, what you're saying to us is that we all have a responsibility to ensure that, number one, when we're buying tyres, that we're buying them from a reputable place, and number two, that if there is somebody offering to take away your old mattress, which I think is another issue, or tyres or whatever else for, you know, 50 quid, you've got to make yeah. sure that they are a registered... Um, operator who are going to get rid of things in the correct Absolutely. manner. Don't, don't, don't be afraid to ask your garage man you're registered with ELT to get rid of your products correctly. What's ELT, Alan? It's the Repack ELT. It's the organisation set up by Repack that all these manufacturers and garages and stuff have to be registered. They also have to register with me, County Council, right. to get rid of their materials correctly. Like, right. There's no point in giving a guy changing your oil three times a year he ends up with a five gallon drum of oil where's that five gallon drum of oil going to end up because I know we're picking a lot of them up in County Mead yeah. but myself Ashley and our other colleague Carl we all pick them up on a daily weekly and, basis and besides the fact that these are I mean you described the place where these tyres dumped as being um, you know a, a scenic kind of spot so besides the fact that they're an eyesore they're also doing huge damage to the environment and to wildlife Absolutely, and like coming up to this time of the year, and again, we're going to urge businesses, householders, garages, everything. 
don't be given your tyres are any materials for bonfires. Yeah. Like, burning a tyre alone, you're creating carbon monoxide, cyanide, sulphur dioxide, butane and styrene is what goes into the atmosphere. It's a very thick smoke. It stays in the atmosphere a long time. And if it starts to rain, it's going to land back down to the ground and then people wonder why they're sick. All them chemicals are coming back down to the ground at some stage. Yeah. And it's, it's people that need to wake up and realise environment is first and foremost on everyone's tongue right yeah. now because of what we're paying for it, obviously. Yeah. You have carbon tax, you have fuel tax, you have all sorts of taxes. But, like, people need to wake up and it's, everyone can do their own little bit. Mm. And it, it's not just, oh, should we leave it to the government and the big multinationals and the big factories? Everybody needs to do their bit. Yeah, yeah. so our, we all have a responsibility. We have, to, we have to pass our environment to our next generation and their generation. That's What's it going to be like in... 200 years time if everyone says Ash is sick it's someone else to look after it yeah, it's, not, it's down to every individual to do it yeah yeah, that's really good advice so we all have a responsibility uh, to make sure that uh, the stuff that we are getting rid of we're getting rid of it correctly by passing it on to a registered operator that's yeah, a really also, good social media pages local groups and stuff like that your neighbourhood WhatsApp to, group etc now you're talking about yeah that as well but I'm urging these buy and sell groups on social media right. the administrators of them pages to say listen, there's going to be no advertising for picking up rubbish here unless you unless you display a waste collection permit number that matches your name and your business. Otherwise, we're not putting the ad up. Right, okay. If we allow these ads to go up, man, man with a van picking up rubbish. Yeah. The rubbish won't end up. Yeah. People will like, that's that's don't, a, that's don't seem to wake up to it. Yeah, that's a that's a really good message to get out there because I think you know we don't allow people into our houses, you know, who are coming to read meters etc. without seeing their ID. So this is the same, exactly, exactly the same situation. Yeah. Alan, I think if I am if uh, if my information is correct, which I'm sure it is, that you're also the dog warden. Is that right for for County one Meath? One of them. One of them. Yeah. One of one them. Of them. And yeah. um, am I correct in thinking? And this breaks my heart to even think about it as somebody who is a um, well a dog owner or dog slave. Well, no, I'm really more of a cat slave and a dog owner um, but the, the problem of dumping is that the right word or getting rid of no, your I, dogs I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say dumping well we would say probably dumping but look at the whole of last year in 2021 we took in 217 dogs for the whole year Right. Um, this year up until yesterday we had 217 dogs out of that 217 122 of them were strays and we had 96 or 95 surrenders and we're seeing this, and we're seeing it big time now that people have gotten dogs during the COVID. They're sitting at home looking after this lovely little puppy. All of a sudden, now people are going back to work, and the dog is at home, or there's someone at them or Grace's, and oh, we'll just we'll fire the dog into the pound. It's not a huge feat to put it into the pound, and we'll get it in there and it'll be looked after. Now, it is looked after, but it's heartbreaking for the staff and the pound ourselves, for everyone that loves the dog, to see a dog that sometimes people have paid colossal money for, probably. 10 times the value of a dog during COVID. Yeah. Like people are paying 2,000 euros for a dog that was worth 200. Yeah. Now all of a sudden we're seeing these dogs creeping into the pound and people are coming in. Oh, I have to go back to work. I don't have time to look after us. Like we have a nine-year-old German Shepherd in there at the minute. And why we have a nine-year-old German Shepherd? It's beyond me. I'm a dog lover. A lot of people out there love their dogs. It's heartbreaking when a dog dies. But how somebody can actually surrender an elderly dog into a pound? Now, yeah. the pound is fantastic. Pounds are not what they used to be. 
people will say, oh, pound is a dart into dungy hole of a place where a dog goes in and gets a needle. It doesn't. It doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen in our pound anyway. Do you pass like, the dogs on, Alan, to, to rescues for rehoming? Well, I, can't, I can't. I can't praise Philip and Eleanor that work in the pound. I really can't praise them enough for what they do. They, Philip has such a huge, huge contacts of people with rescues and yeah. all over the country. Like, you could bring a dog into Philip and it's gone tomorrow. Yeah. You say, oh, God, Philip, you got the dog at home. Yeah, there was a rescue that helped us out with the dog. And it's heartbreaking to see it, but like, people need to wake up. If you can't if you can't look after a child, don't yeah. get a dog. Yeah, that's, that's very good idea. advice, yeah. Dog, dogs are like kids. They're going to need the same attention as kids will need. That's absolutely so right. Dog, yeah. Do your research into the breed. Yeah, and do your homework. Research, research, yeah. research. And don't Love. be afraid. We can answer questions. We're always absolutely. on the phone. If you need a bit of advice or help, we can help you out. Alan, I, I, I could talk to you all day. You're a, a, a fountain of wisdom and good advice. Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time today and continued good luck uh, in oh, your thank role. You. Thanks. Say, don't, don't forget if the biscuits are brought in. I'll, I'll avoid it. Custom. I'll avoid it. <laughs> that was Alan Nolan uh, from Meath County Council. Thank you, Alan. And you're welcome back uh, to Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully. It's mid-autumn and uh, although I know that booksellers and publishers always talk about summer reads, I think it's now this time of year when I want to stock up on some really good books for the long, dark nights ahead. Um, I love novels that you can really sink into and wrap around yourself like a warm blanket. So when I heard that writer Felicity Hayes McCoy's new book was called The Keepsake Quilters, I thought that sounds like a perfect autumn winter read and it is just that. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy which I read during the summer and uh, I just thought it was great. But anyway, uh, let's talk to Felicity who joins us now. Hi Felicity. Hi Barbara, thank you for having me on. Not at all, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Felicity, you're probably best known for your Finn Farron series of novels which I know have been hugely successful and feature a local librarian and are set on a fictional peninsula which may or may not bear a passing resemblance to your beloved Dingle Peninsula in County (laughs) Kerry. But this new novel, The Keepsake Quilters, is a standalone. It's not part of that series. Was writing a standalone something you've wanted to do for a long time or was this a story that you just couldn't get out of your head until you wrote it. Well, do you know, I think it was both, Barbara. I mean, uh, yeah, there are seven uh, Finn Farron novels so far and another one due to come out uh, in next year or the year after. I can't keep touch. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't written it yet. I haven't written it yet, but I will write it any moment now. But The Keepsake Quilters was, it's a standalone, it's a, it's a generational family saga and it was a book that kind of jumped out at me and demanded that I wrote it. And I got on to my publisher, uh, my editor at the publishers, Ashet Ireland, who was expecting another Finfarin. And I said, listen, here's the book and here's the idea and here's the name. And what would you say if I stood back from Finfarin for a little while and, and wrote it? And I think the story and the, and, the, and the title grabbed her as much as it had kind of grabbed me. And I remember she came back and she said, oh, God, I really want to meet the Carson women. That's the, the, the family uh, that, that it's about. Go on, go on. Yeah, we'll, we'll put Fanfaron on hold and go write it. So that's what I did. And it's coming out at the end of October. Fabulous. As I said, I was lucky enough to get a, a copy, an advanced copy of the book over the summer. And I'm, uh, I, 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 I know I'm not just saying this because we know each other in real life, but it was one of my favourite books of the year. It would be in my top five. One of the reasons I particularly liked it was it is a beautiful portrait of the relationship between three generations of women. It's a deeply feminine work um, and one that I think captures the difficulties very often that 
mothers and daughters and grandmothers have because sometimes because they're actually quite similar and that's a theme that you handle I think so beautifully in the book can you tell us a little bit without giving us giving away any spoilers of what the book is about what the premise of the book is well as you say it's it's three women in one family and I suppose the the sort of starting point character is Marguerite she's the grandmother she has uh, spent a lot of her adult life over in London married in London but grew up in Wicklow in a house in the Wicklow Hills and she's recently widowed she's decided to sell up in London and come back and retire into her old family house in Wicklow. Meanwhile, still over in London, there's her daughter Val. Uh, and Val, in her time, was a single mum. And Val's daughter Penny is a very successful, a very thrusting career woman. She's, she works in uh, television production in London. She's an executive producer of a morning TV programme. And she's a totally organised woman. She has her life organised to the last inch. And what happens at the beginning of the story is we find that Penny is pregnant, uh, unexpected pregnancy. She's not married. She needs to tell her mom and her gran about it. But she can't get her head around what's happening to her without feeling that everybody is telling her what to do and she's the one who's always in charge. So basically what happens is when she tells them about it in, in a cafe in London, they, uh, they're they trying to be helpful and nice. She finds they're being pushy. She kind of retreats into herself and to keep Val from going mad because Val was a single mum herself and yeah. she's really worried about her daughter, to keep her from going crazy while Penny gets her head around things. Marguerite comes up with the idea but she in Ireland, in Wicklow, and Val in London, because that's where Val lives, as Penny does, will together piece together bits of fabric from the past, you know, frocks yeah. that they made for themselves, their wedding dresses, things like that. And they'll make two sides of a cot quilt for the baby. And then they'll bind it together and it'll be a present for the baby. In the interim, it'll keep them busy. And at the end, it'll be a welcome keepsake for the baby and Penny will know that the baby is wanted and loved. I think so many of us will identify with that feeling of trying to help your adult children and (laughs) and knowing that in so doing, you're kind of coming across as, you know, being a little overbearing and like as if, as you said, you're trying to boss them around when they want you to back off and leave them alone. And that was one of the things that I thought you captured so beautifully in it. Um, But I know there were other things that were a general inspiration for you in this book. Visits to museums and things like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I'm always interested in where writers get their inspiration from. Yeah, I think writers are too. You know? <laughs> you kind of think, oh my God, where did that come from? Well, in in the quilter's case, what happened was, I I think I probably had a, a generational saga brewing at the back of my mind, but I didn't know who it was about or where it was about. Or didn't have a starting point. And I was um, I was in the Crawford Gallery in Cork. And it happened because, they, like a lot of galleries, what they do is they don't have all of their paintings on the wall at one time because they have more paintings than they have walls. So they have a kind of a, a, a cycle. And it happened that when I was down there, there was an exhibition of paintings which were done by Irish um, women artists or painters, paintings, portraits of women in Ireland, sort of around the 20s, 30s and 40s. And I was looking at these women in beautiful frocks. I mean, you know, velvets and satins and so gorgeous style that you can imagine. <laughs> and I was thinking, gorgeous portraits, gorgeous women. How interesting that these are Irish female artists that I knew about, actually, but I hadn't seen them together in one place and they hadn't struck me so so strongly before. 
And the two things, the idea of paintings, portraits, and the idea of what did those women wear when they weren't wearing their gorgeous frocks to be painted in, you know, and what happened to all those gorgeous frocks came together. And for me, they gave me, among other things, they gave me a a storyline because Marguerite in the the book, Uh. her mom, who is dead, there's a portrait of her mom hanging on the wall in that family house in Wicklow and there's a whole storyline tied into right. who that woman was and what the portrait is about and who painted it. And her life. And repeating and patterns life. is the other thing that I think you've captured very well which I think you often see in families. The other the other thing that struck me is that your love of place and I've referred to the fact that you split your life between London and um Dingle in the Kerry in the Gaeltacht on the Dingle Peninsula in Kerry but your love of place is really strong um, and your descriptions of London are now my geography of London's not brilliant but around Borough Market um, are just so evocative you know you could hear and smell and see the busyness of Borough Market it's clearly somewhere you really do love yourself I do. I adore it. I love marketplaces. I love city markets, you know, where you get traders who might have been working there for generations. Again, it's this whole idea of passing on of skills, passing on of family traditions. And near where I live in London, that's on the South Bank, and Borough Market is. And Borough Market is one of the oldest markets in London. I mean, if you think... Think something like the English market in Cork, you know, but it's yeah. huge and it's under a gorgeous Victorian iron and glass roof and it's crowded and there's food and there's beautiful smells. Basically, it's a food market. It has been since the 11th century. Wow. And that, that buzz, that food and shouts of people and selling their wares and crowds, I just adore. And I also think it's very festive you yes. know, because the book ends... The book runs across the time of Penny's pregnancy. So it's, you know, roughly uh, uh, nine months long, but obviously it goes back into the past and other people's stories and her mom's story, Marguerite's story and Penny's story all are told. They all emerge through the, the pieces of fabric. But it ends up in Christmas week and it's in Penny's flat, which is over what was a junk shop yes. in, close to Borough Market, but is now an upcycling um, lifestyle shop. And so she's upstairs and... They literally, it ends on a Christmas lunch that, that they bought from Borough Market. Yes. And the, and the giving of the quilt as a present. And I just love that kind of kindly feeling you're yeah. talking about going out to buy gorgeous food and, you know, and family celebrations. But markets are very much about community, aren't they? They tend to be deeply yeah. rooted in the local community and they're very much yeah. about communities of people. You know, I mean, if you've, and you know, it fascinates me as to why our capital city really doesn't have a decent market. You know, you've mentioned the English market in Cork and there's one, I think the one in Belfast is George's Street Market or George's market. I think so, yeah. But yeah. there's, which is again, like you describe, half of it is food and, and beautiful, uh, uh, all kinds of food. And then the other half of it is craft and, and kind of handmade stuff. And it's absolutely fabulous. And in the city, we don't, in Dublin City, we don't actually have that, um, which, you know, we must be rare in Europe as a capital city, not having a decent market. I know. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm sort of dealing with, I, one of the themes in the book is the idea of sustainability, yes. the idea about growing local, eating local, small communities providing, you know, um, employment for their own communities, how that was much more the case in the past. But I think is actually coming back now. I mean, I have two characters in The Keepsake Quilters who are um, young. They're, yeah. they're, you know, 14-year-old and 12-year-old. And they are terribly interested in sustainability. They're terribly aware of climate change. They're, 
And they're not, you know, geeks. They're totally ordinary kids. They're worrying about the sorts of things that kids are worried about these days. And interestingly to me, that was something that Penny was really struck by when she finds she's pregnant, hadn't intended to bring a child into the world, is bringing a child into the world. She starts becoming aware of issues that the child might be asking her about in 12 years' time or 14 years' time. And these younger characters are there sort of, they're, they're, they're very teenagery, so they're not particularly yeah. laid back or friendly. But they absolutely are part of passing. If Marguerite and her, her mom are teaching Penny about the past, these younger kids are teaching Penny about what it's going to be like in the future. Yeah. And I think it's going to be small, local, community focused, and very, very vibrant, very exciting, and very um, empowering. I and love. all my books are about that. They're about the idea of empowering women and families and communities. Yeah, yeah, I love it. There's so much in the book that I just, you know, as I was reading, I was like, yes, yes, yes. But the <laughs> other thing which I want to ask you is because the other character almost in the book is your descriptions of the various different fabrics, not just the stories that they contain, if you like, but the actual description. I could I could feel and, and, and I could see the fabrics, that the various different types of fabrics that you were um, describing. Are you a quilter yourself or a sewer? Are you handy with a needle and thread? Well, I'm definitely not a quilter and I worried about that at the beginning and then I realised that I was writing a book about women who weren't quilters themselves but who were doing this, but they were needlewomen. And I guess I, you know, my mum was a fantastically uh, um, uh, talented needlewoman. My sister Anne was a textile designer. Um, my brother Ian was an architect and he was always interested in how things were made. So the very first skirt I made when I was at college in the 70s was a black velvet maxi skirt. And I made it to a pattern Ian designed and cut out for me wow. from, from pages of the Irish Times. Wow. So he used the Irish Times uh, paper yes, to cut yeah. the pattern out. And so I suppose there was always, there was always somebody in my family there, either with a needle smocking like my mom or with a sewing machine like my sister. And so that is part of my background. And I love fashion. Uh-huh. I love clothes. Yeah, and if- love, love, love them. <laughs> and come here, so- the, 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 the fact that your book has focused on, well, you know, part of the book and the title of the book is about quilters. It has opened up a whole new word, world for you because I believe that in advance of the publication of the book, that uh, groups of quilters and needlewomen and various things like that uh, want to come together in order to talk about the book while they're sewing away. Is that correct? one of the joys of social media if you're an author. Yeah. The, the book has a beautiful cover. It's a lovely, lovely festive cover. And when Achette Ireland, my publishers, put it up on Instagram first, uh, what started happening was people were sharing, you know, and putting it up on reels and kind of getting in touch and things and saying how much they liked it. And then what started happening was quite a group started contacting me. And the joy for me about this book, because it is about community and it's about local groups being being able to come together and empower each other and it's cross-generational. The joy for me was that they started saying, listen, we, this will be around the country, you know, rural places around the country, and they'd be saying, listen, we've got a local bookshop in our village or in our town, and if they're selling you a book, would we get together with them? Would we organise something where you would come in and chat or talk or, yes. you know, find the books? And we'd bring in our quilting and we can sit around quilting and oh. and share stories. And for me, that is 
it is yeah no I totally I, I totally get that and uh, you know with, with your marketing hat on Felicity you're going to get some great content for social media you'll get some lovely photos and nice well, anecdotes it. from that as well and indeed if anyone listening here is, is a quilter or a bookshop owner and thinks this sounds like a great idea I've been going around the country a bit and I'm trying to you know I'm trying to be there for people who are sure. interested and to me that is that's the book happening in three dimensions yes what I mean yes and it's yes. joyous before Christmas it's oh I, I know exactly what you mean and I have a feeling there will be at least one bookshop local bookshop owner listening because I'm going to be talking to her a little bit later on so the Keepsake Quilters is will be in shops when in October It'll be uh, in shopping from the 20th of October. Right. Um, and so it's, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a kind of a wintry book. It's kind of a sit down and wrap yourself yeah. in a blanket kind of book, it preferably totally a patchwork blanket. Yes. <laughs> but it's, um, it, as a, and it ends up on, in Christmas week, so it's a nice Christmas presenty kind of thing. I was very touched. Roisin Meany was one of the people who, who read it in advance and sort of gave quotes to the publishers. And she said, the perfect festive read. Yes. And I thought, well, you can't do better than that. You can't. You absolutely can't. You absolutely can't. It's there from the 20th of October. Okay, that's that's great. And come here. So you're now, I know when writers like you, accomplished writers like you, you've got this baby, which is about to be launched uh, out into the world next month. And you'll have to do a lot of work, as you say, around that, getting it out and about. Um, What are you working on right now? Are you working? Have you have you are you not writing at the moment or are you started on the next Finn Farron one yet? Well, I'm plotting the next Finn Farron one, and uh, one of the characters in Finn Farron is is, is uh, Fury O'Shea. He's a character that the that the readers tend to like a lot. Yeah. He's a he's a, a, an elderly builder, which is a person oh. that everybody has in their area. <laughs> if they're lucky, <laughs> if they're lucky, Felicity. <laughs> well, now I wouldn't know how lucky you'd be with Fury because he tells you how to do things. But he is essentially, you know, an incredibly warm-hearted person who really, really makes it his business to make things work for his community. And in this book, it's going to be the case that among the other storylines, because there's always a series of storylines because yes. it's about a community, but Fury's storyline is going to be the time when, in fact, Fury couldn't help everybody else and it was everybody else who helped him. Oh. So in a sense, it's his book and his backstory and the vulnerable side of this very kind of... Um, Older man. Older man, yeah, he's in his late seventies. He's worked over in the sites in London, and he's back now, lording it at home. Lording it at home, excellent, Felicity. It is always an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I wish you the best of success. This is a special book. It's the kind of book, and it doesn't happen very often. When I read it, I want to keep it. I I don't want to pass it on or do anything with it because I know I will go back to it again. I enjoyed it very very much. So I hope you make it to uh, to this area here to Louth and Mead, uh, maybe to draw it out with with the book to meet local quilters and needlewomen because I'm sure you'll have great crack. Felicity, thanks so much for joining me today. That's Felicity Hayes-McCoy and her new book, which will be out in October, is called The Keepsake Quilters. It is published by Hachette. Don't go away. After the break, we've got another competition for you. And you're welcome back. Actually, just talking about books, I was delighted today when I uh, looked at my Irish Times uh, this morning to see that Roisin Ingle, columnist in the Irish Times, has uh, has mentioned uh, my book. My book's called Wise Up and it's about uh, ageing power uh, 
uh, wisdom and the older woman. Um, and Roisin's column today is called It is the age of the crone and I want answers. Um, and as I say, she talks about the fact that uh, there are uh, my book, among others, about how to reclaim yourself in your 50s and beyond. Um, so that's nice. You know, it's the small things that you don't expect and you suddenly go, oh, that's really nice and that make you smile. So if you have any 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 things that happened to you today or recently that made you smile and that people very often don't realise that doing those little things can actually really make somebody's day. So that really made my day. So I'm happy. I'm happy most of the time anyway. Anyway, um, one of the things that should make you happy uh, is the fact that we have another giveaway for you, another competition. And this uh, this time, wait till you hear this, Bellies Town Races, a two-day September festival, takes place on Wednesday the 28th and Thursday the 29th of September on the hill of Crocofotha in County Meath. And we have not one, not two, but we have three pairs of tickets to give away today for Wednesday the 28th at Bellewstown. And Wednesday sees the return of Frankie Dottori, um, who's going to take on Willie Mullins in the Barney Curley Charity Cup Day. Um, and that is in support of Direct Aid for Africa uh, charity. So um, if you want to be in with a chance uh, to win one of these, as I say, three pairs of tickets, what you've got to do is you've got to text the word Frankie along with your name and location to uh, either text or WhatsApp to 086 1800 eight um, and we will announce the winners at the end of the show. Um, we've got some comments here as well about about uh, biscuits so you're all talking about biscuits which is great. Um, Tommy says he used to love Marietta and butter but now it's gold grain. Tommy I want to know do you put the butter on the gold grain or, or our gold grain better without the butter. Um, somebody else says Marietta biscuits are on sale in Super Value in Kings Court. That's great. I need to know where Garibaldi biscuits are. They're the ones that I can't find anywhere. Um, Mary in Denora has mentioned coconut creams. Yeah, where are the coconut creams? Um, we haven't seen those for a long time. And John in Drogheda says polo biscuits. They were his favourite things. And then uh, a caller from Navan says the biscuits with the icing on top. I remember those. I can see those, the biscuits with the icing on top, but I have no recollect. Were they iced fancies? No, they were cakes, weren't they? I've no idea what they were called. Um, so if you know what those iced biscuits uh, were called, uh, do do let us know. Um, anyway, I can see all your, you're all getting in touch now about the, the Bellews Town Races competition. If you want more details about Bellews Town Races, um, and, uh, you can find all the details on bellewstownraces.org. I.E. Right, we're going to go uh, to a break. Um, and before we do, we're going to listen to some Anastasia. This is Left Alone, no, Let out Outside Alone. Right, have you got a child in an exam year? I know it's only September, but I know already both students and their parents are thinking ahead, uh, perhaps to next June, particularly if you've got somebody in Leaving Cert. So what about grinds um, and the demand for grinds and whether they're a good idea or a bad idea? In order to discuss this, I am joined on the line now by Irene Gahan of Academy Books in Southgate. Um, Irene also runs the Drogheda Grinds Academy. Um, And I'm also joined from Wicklow by Daniel Verveen. Um, Daniel runs two grind schools in Wicklow Town and in Greystones called Exam Focus Ireland. Hello to you both. How are you? Hi there, Barbara. Thanks for having Hi, me on. Hi, Barbara. Hello, Irene, and hello, Daniel. Irene, I'm going to come to you first, if I may, because yes. I think that you have already, and as I say, we're only a couple of weeks into the, the academic year, you have already noticed a big increase in the demand for grinds. Is that right? Yeah, I think this is where the Drogheda Grinds Academy is now. We're going into our eighth year um, in Drogheda, so we've kind of built up quite a reputation. But generally in September, 
um, you know, there's there's not an awful lot of forethought. It's kind of when they get to January, it's like, okay, now the foot's, you know, the foot's on the floor and we have to go. But an awful lot more students seem to be taking them up in September, which in reality is better because you're not struggling or you're not panicking by the time you get to your kind of final run into June. Um, but we're seeing a huge take uh, uptake in students this year. And I think a lot of it's down to a lot of them haven't done their junior search, so they haven't sat an official state of exam, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it's a much more, it, it is much, much better in the sense that they're planning it out. They're looking at their year. They're focusing on, OK, I'm going to do this now. I might not need anything in January. But there is a quite a bit of an uptake. But there's, there's, there's always lots of different reasons for why there is an uptake. And I think... You know, when I talk to other grind schools, and Daniel and I would have this conversation as well, that there's lots of reasons why a student goes for grinds. Um, and it can be, grinds can be quite controversial um, in some cases and in some ways. And it, it, it's always kind of, um, you know, the, those that said you should have grinds and those are saying you shouldn't have grinds. You should be relying to the schools. The schools should be good enough. Um, you don't need grinds. Um, so I suppose there's, there's kind of, that's always down then to, to my argument as to why a child should take grinds or to why an, a child may need to hold off on grinds sure. or yet should show themselves into it. Okay. Um, Daniel, have you noticed a, a similar kind of uh, busyness early in the year? Yeah, we have. I'd echo everything Irene has yeah. said there. Um, we're, we're certainly uh, have had an increase in numbers at the beginning of this year. Um, interestingly, we've noticed a significant increase in the number of boys joining early. Um, so kind of end of August and early September. Um, we're the same, similar to uh, Irene, that we would offer a 37-week um, course. And we would encourage students to join as soon as possible, early as early in the year as possible, because we endeavour to cover the full either junior cycle or senior cycle course in those 37 weeks. Um, so it's, a, it's an accelerated pace, but it ensures focus only on the most examinable material, the most important content. Mm. Um, our team of expert tutors and experienced tutors know what is most important and what's worth spending time on and what isn't based on uh, previous exam uh, history and so on. Um, so it, it, it's still acceptable for students to join at, at any stage throughout the course and, and the year is broken into three trimesters to help to facilitate that as kind of natural opportunities throughout the year. Um, but to see the best results, we would always encourage joining as, as soon as possible. Have you any insight, Daniel? You mentioned there that you're seeing an uptake in particular with boys. Is there any particular reason why boys have suddenly... Yeah, no. Other again, I don't have any statistics or data other than our own um, and other than anecdotal evidence. I suppose I do a lot of mentoring and coaching with our students as well in our new study space facility that we have in Wicklow Town, where we try to focus and work on students' time management skills and, right. and their ability to start to develop and identify times in their week and in their schedule where they can be productive. They can set smart goals. They can go and then um, work on those goals and achieve them. And anecdotally, a lot of, um, particularly the boys that, that I would have had conversations with will put their hands up straight away and say, I really didn't um, switch on enough during the yeah. online learning and the period of online learning. I was coasting a lot during um, maybe third year, fourth year, uh, and even fifth year. And now um, all of a sudden, the reality of the leaving certificate um, is, is there right in front of them. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't say that there's, there's a, a, an air of hysteria or anything like that. But just a rea- reality there, this is what has happened and that they want to be proactive 
uh, in trying to get back on, on track. Sounds positive enough. Irene, I know that you have uh, pointed to the fact that um, you think that schools are struggling to get teachers um, and that might be one of the reasons why you're seeing um, an increase in demand. Is that right? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, like we're here for, we've been here uh, seven years now. So, you know, it's every term, you, every year you see a different a different kind of instance or a different kind of play. I mean, the biggest thing I've noticed is, I mean, talking. I mean, we work with a lot of the local schools, so I would talk to a lot of the principals. Yeah. They're finding it difficult to get teachers that might be on 11-hour contracts or 12-hour contracts because it means a teacher has to maybe relocate. They're trying to find rent. They're trying to find accommodation. So they're not necessarily getting teachers for, say, subjects that might not have a big uptake, so like the likes of economics or right. tech graphics or DCG, that kind of thing. So they're struggling to get them. So there's a knock-on effect. Um, then you would obviously have to allow for, you know, sort of illnesses or maternity leaves, or and they would get sub-teachers in as well. So there's a knock-on effect that goes with that. I mean, we have an instance, uh, a few instances here where students have gone into fifth year not having any of the, the subjects that they actually want, and they're very determined. One of them wants to do languages, one of them wants to do science. The science kid has got no languages, and the language kid's got all science subjects. Right. So they're going to try and take them outside of school where they can um, until, the, you know, the, the school can, can facilitate them. Um, so I kind of feel hard, I, I, you know, I, my heart goes out to principals trying to, to juggle this. I, suppo- um, I suppose in an ideal world, we shouldn't yeah. need, I mean, I know, I, I know, you, I don't expect you to agree with this necessarily. No, it's your businesses. You. But we shouldn't agree. really need to have grinds. I know exactly you're going to say that. Yeah. I completely agree with you. In an ideal world, we shouldn't. But I mean, I had grinds 35 years ago for my leaving cert, and as sure as <laughs> night follows day, it's going to happen in another 35. Yeah. I think. The problem, what I would say is, I mean, we originally, I originally set up the school because my um, my son had dyslexia and he needed that extra, and he got a late diagnosis of dyslexia. So he was in secondary school. So he needed extra help. He needed extra focus. He needed extra time. And an awful lot of our students um, would be students who might be really, really strong in, in so say, three subjects and then struggle at the other subjects. Yeah. Um, so you're just helping them. It's not necessarily about getting an A. Sometimes a student C is another student. A and we stream our classes um, as well so you know it's kind of like if you want your H1 H2 in French you go to that class yeah. do you know that kind of way yeah, and it's, yeah. it's very much about that's, there's, in an ideal world every teacher would be absolutely perfect every school would yeah. facilitate every child that's not going to happen and it's never going to happen I think one and of the I think it's, 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 it's we just provide the extra help yeah. where it's where necessary but I do think now correct me if I'm wrong but again and I'm, I'm older than you and I remember having the grinds because I had one teacher who wasn't brilliant and was acknowledged as being not brilliant and it was in yeah. order for us to kind of stay stay abreast of what was going on a lot of us took a grind in French Um but I mean, do you think that because grind schools are now so much more widely available that it causes parents to have a bit of a brain meltdown where they roll, they enroll their kids for like grinds in everything in order for them yeah. to get the maximum amount of points? Yeah, and, and, and we're really, we're really, really against this. Yeah. Um, like we would have a maximum of three subjects in general. Per child. Junior, yeah, in general, junior search subjects, two. Yeah. We would rarely allow them to do three and then in leading search we would do three. Um, and, and like even if a student wants to do four they might do an intensive day instead but asking a child asking a student who's in fifth or sixth year 
to do an extra four hours to any over an extra four hours tuition um, on top of you know on top of that it's too it, it's a lot and and you you know you you also have to judge by the child you know if one child is just looking to stay up or it's, you know to basically pass their leaving cert and get through it obviously the supports are there if another one's looking for H1 H2 you have to look at their mental health and their well-being mm. well how are they coping with everything else that's going on and and in some cases it's kind of a case of sitting down with a student going okay you know, where are you at and how are you coping with everything else um, to see whether a child can even go for three subjects because it is an extra and it's a lot of an extra ask. Yeah, and and you're happy enough to provide that advice to parents, you know, if if parents wanted to contact you and explain the situation for their child and you'll be there to give them advice as to what you think they they should do or shouldn't do as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, much uh, very much like Daniel, um, when his um, service that he's providing, we we will sit down with parents, we will sit down with students and go, look, if your child's doing seven honours subjects and you're looking to try and get them into another, you know, there's got to be some give. And I I always point out the points race is, it's crazy. Not every not every person is good at every single subject, regardless. Mm. Um, like you and I wouldn't be. I mean, I won't even talk to you about my maths, but my, my you know my English <laughs> and my French is actually pretty good. And we I know Louise. We know Louise can't bake, so um, but I don't know if you do grinds in that. Anyway, listen. What I'm, I'm saying is not everyone's perfect. Not everyone's great at everything. Everything. So yeah. You have to balance it out. That's true. That's good advice for life, Irene. Right there. Listen, I could have talked to you both uh, for the rest of the afternoon because we all have stories about this and being parents and school and exams and all of the rest of it but um, thank you both for taking the time that's Irene Gahan from the Drogheda Grinds Academy and Daniel Verveen from Exam Focus Ireland in Wicklow thank you The Late Lunch Artist of the Week Artist of the Week Now if you've been paying attention you know that the artist of the week this week is Don McLean. In 1969, he recorded his first album, Tapestry, in Berkeley in California. The student riots were in full rage outside the studio as Don was inside singing the beautiful love song, And I Love You So. The album was first released by Media Arts and attracted good reviews and some limited commercial success, but it did succeed in transforming Don McLean from a rather unknown singer to an underground sensation. However, in 1973, Perry Como recorded And I Love You So um, and took it to the UK top five. It would actually be the last Perry Como song uh, to chart. As I say, that was in 1973. It's a beautiful and it's a simple love song. And I love the first lines in particular. Again, I've referenced this a few times this week. Don McLean is a poet starts with and I love you so and people ask me how how I've lived till now and I tell them I don't know that's poetry if nothing else is anyway this is and I still love you so and I love you so You'd miss the slow set all the same, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be lovely to be waltzing around your kitchen there with somebody holding tight to that? Anyway, stay with us. Coming up after the break, we are going to find out what pocket forests are. So picture this, a forest of birch, ash and alder trees with holly and hazel bushes under the trees and wild garlic underfoot. A scene of natural, beautiful, organised chaos. 
A lone tree with bare soil underneath is not a natural state for a tree. Trees grow in communities of plants, collaborating with each other and creating networks in the soil and in the air. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Both of these descriptions come from the website of a company called Pocket Forests, who say that if you are surrounded by the grey concrete of urban landscapes, this vision of beautiful, organised natural chaos can actually become a reality because pocket forests can make this dream, albeit on a reduced scale, come true. So to tell us more about this wonderful idea, I am now joined on the line by writer and self-described hankerer after the solace of nature, Catherine Cleary. Hiya, Catherine. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. Listen, your website says that you connect, uh, the website of of, uh, Pocket Forests says that you reconnect people with nature. How do you do that? What is a pocket forest? Well, it's an idea that originated back in the 1970s in Japan, and it was a botanist who actually died only just last year. He was in his 90s when he died, and he loved... um, Japan is a very forested country. I think it's up to about 70% of the country is forested compared to, um, you know, a little over 10% of Ireland, and most of that is non-native. And obviously Japan is a very urban country as well, and a lot of people live in very densely populated cities. So he worked out a way that you could put... um, what would be in an original forest that would grow naturally if you chose the plants that would be there and you could put them, plant them, plant them very densely in city areas, you could almost create a pop-up version of a forest and it would grow very quickly because of how the trees are planted and how the soil is treated. Um, so really you're just opening up ground in an urban area and allowing what would happen naturally over, you know, if you didn't mow it, uh, trees would probably seed themselves and over decades there would be a forest there eventually and um, you're just kind of fast tracking that idea so it it went uh, it was it was popular in japan it came through india um where the, the phrase tiny forest was coined by a, a car engineer who ended up working on one of these projects and, and falling in love with the idea and then when we came across it back in 2020 during the first lockdown um we made contact with ivn which is a dutch um, environmental group and they had just brought the concept to europe and we're finding that it worked brilliantly in europe as well because it's based on native plants so wherever you do it you use the native plants that would grow there naturally as i say if humans weren't there um, so it's a great project so in order for you to set this up here i presume you had to do um quite a lot of advanced research into what are because I think we've become confused as to what things are native to here and what things are not native to here because we've so many other species of things growing here. Yeah and it's partly a result of you know people loving um, the variety in gardens and there's a lot of fashion I suppose in gardens as well so garden centres like to give an offering that's different every season and there can be trends a bit like fashion um, whereas actually our native plants are kind of Cinderella plants in a lot of ways you might struggle to find them even in a lot of garden centres because nurseries that grow them will typically be growing them for um, farms and, and large-scale planting. Um, and there are a very small number of native plants, partly because we got cut off from the mainland of Europe so quickly, um, you know, in comparison to other parts of the world. Say, say for example, in India, there's something like 2,000 native trees and shrubs, whereas in Ireland, it would be fewer than 30. So, yeah, we had a lot of research to do um, because... This isn't a method that's really used by um, foresters. They would plant for timber, so they would plant trees much further apart um, to allow them to grow into strong timber trees. Uh, And also, I suppose what we really want to do is bring these um, ecosystems, which they are because they're they're plants that work together, 
into people's neighbourhoods and, and areas where they can see them because a lot of the native forest that's going to be planted in the countryside, hopefully, um, is going to be very remote. It's not going to be really accessible to a lot of people. Um, and we, you know, we're just relearning how beautiful these plants are and then watching all the wildlife that flows into your garden or uh, community area when you, when you put in those plants because they really do okay the birds. I'm going to come back to that in a moment because I want to talk more about that. But first of all, is there, can you give us a kind of a, um, um, a pen picture, an outline as to the, how you go about if somebody wants to plant uh, a pocket forest? Is there three stages that you have to do uh, and how much work is involved and how long does it take? Yeah, I mean, ideally, if you've got a lot of time, um, three stages. So you start by composting uh, initially, because we we do a lot of a lot of our work now is looking at the health of the soil before we plant the trees. What we're really trying to do is mimic what a forest floor would contain. So a forest floor would have lots of leaves and and branches and organic matter that just falls and so mulched down. So there's no need for adding anything or watering anything. So we want to we want to create that that. firstly. so we would do that, um, you know, and we've done great composting workshops with people as well because we're realising there's so much food waste happening if it's being composted and put back into the soil. It's a much healthier way yeah. to deal with it. Um, and then we do a soil preparation where typically what we're working with is, is a grassy area, small grassy area that people aren't using for playing yeah. or you know, picnicking on. Um, and we're just trying to stop the grass from growing using very natural methods all um, organic compostable materials and usually a lot of waste so we you know we, we stock bike shops and get lots of cardboard bike boxes and things like yeah. that because they're perfect for, for the mulching stage and then we just let all the soil life do a lot of the work of aerating the soil and getting it you know nice and ready for the trees which we plant in winter time right. uh, because it's, it's the healthiest time to be moving trees from a nursery when they're dormant. And when this and how long would it take when from when you plant for it to, you know, to kind of mature, if you like, into this kind of ecosystem that might attract um, local wildlife and things like that? Very quickly. I mean, I'm looking at my own. I have a very small garden, so I have a small forest in mine, which has five trees and six shrubs in it. And the one of the the tallest tree is the wild cherry, which I planted as a knee high tree, uh, I suppose, 19 months ago now. And it's now taller than I am. So, you know, quickly. And that's the nice thing working with schools, especially where kids might get involved a transition year by the time they're doing their leaving certs. The trees are as tall well established, as and uh, uh, yeah, and established, and they've seen it happen quite quickly. Um, and what will come to live in your forest then? Um, that perhaps wouldn't be there if it was just a lawn or a piece of grass. Well, the birds love it because mm. they have, you know, they can be in the trees just hoovering around. I had a beautiful goldcrest hopping around my forest during the summer. I'd never had a bird that tiny before in my garden before. And it was just hopping from leaf to leaf, taking some of the insects that were around the trees. Uh, so the birds absolutely adore it. Um, we've got a fox living in one of our forest, school forests that the fox hole Fab. has been dug. And, and um, you know, small mammals, uh, You've got your mice, which you probably don't want in your house, but they're, you know, I don't know if they're staying outside in the garden. Yeah. Um, I suppose in larger areas where they are there, you're going to have squirrels coming in as well as the trees get bigger. Yeah. Insects as well and the soil life 
just explodes. You know, you've, you've got earthworms. It just it just makes your whole garden come alive. Um, you know, yeah. from, from a kind of a, a. It's funny how our perceptions have changed. Um, you know, as to as to how there used to be this thing of gardens being neat and tidy and organised and and all of that, and now we're understanding our need for this. Do you need to have deep pockets? Talking about pocket forests in order to embark <laughs> on something like this, be you in a school or at home? Well, we've been very fortunate to get funding from the Department of Agriculture um, and they have a woodland support fund. So we are funded this year to do 20 of our smallest forests with right. schools and groups around the country. So we're able to come to, ideally we can come to schools and say, you know, we have funding, would you like a forest? Yeah. Um, we have some private garden clients as well. So do get in touch with us if you'd like us to, to give you a price on that. Um, and I mean, it's, it's uh, it's an investment, really. It's one of those things that you buy. Uh, I suppose when we buy things, they're brilliant and then they kind of dwindle away on us. Whereas this, you buy something and it's quite small and modest, but actually every year it's going to... It just get, gets bigger and more exciting and more interesting. More exactly. Just um, just if people do want to find out uh, more, Catherine, they can go to your website, which is pocketforest, is it .ie or .com? .ie. Yeah, we're pocketforestplural.ie. Brilliant, brilliant. Listen, I could talk all day and as I say, that's really uh, food for thought. I'm thinking now where I might be able to stick a pocket forest in my own garden. So look, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about that today. That is Catherine Cleary from Pocket Forests. And that's our lot for today. We're out of here. Thank you as usual to Louise. We're back here again at one thirty. Stay with LMFM because next up is Eddie with The Drive. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.